Let's hear God's word from 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I'll make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, <clears throat> that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done for himself, as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines." Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you, which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. 
So the servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. And he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. And the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, last time we began this last section of the book, chapters 27 to 31. And we started last time in chapter 27 with David living by fear, living by sight. And it's understandable, he's tired of running from Saul. And so you can certainly empathize with David. And so David then, taking matters into his own hands, goes to Gath and stayed with Achish at first there in Gath, and then he was placed in Ziklag. And while they were there, he and his 600 men chased down both the enemies of Israel and Philistia, killing and looting. Now, as I indicated, I think this was okay for him to do because he basically is fulfilling uh, what Joshua started, finishing it, and what Saul failed to do. But David then led Achish and the other Philistines to believe that he was attacking Israel, which he was not doing. When you live by fear, it leads to other problems, it leads to other sins. And we see that here with David in chapter 27. And now as we come to chapter 28, David is between a rock and a hard place because of his sin. Okay. So now chapters 28 to 31, these all go together and happen probably within a few days of each other, no more than a few weeks. They are the end of David's stay in Ziklag, the end of Saul's life, and all of this then is in 1010 BC. Also, the events given in these chapters are out of order, at least in some ways. Here tonight, uh, verses 1 and 2 start this whole process. And then we have a big interruption. You go to chapter 29, and you, it continues the thought. You could skip right over the rest of chapter 28, and you wouldn't miss a beat. But the author here, Gad or whoever it was, inserts verses 3 to 25, telling us about Saul living by fear and his response to that, taking matters into his own hands. So you see this comparison and contrast with David and Saul. Now in chapter 29, David is not allowed to fight for the Philistines, In chapter 30, David and his men go and rescue their families. In chapter 31, David and his sons die. And that happens at the same time as David in chapter 30. And so we're given David's dilemma, David's living in fear, David uh, taking matters into his own hands, followed by Saul doing the same kind of thing. We see David's sinful response, but we see Saul's response is even worse. We see that David will be providentially rescued, but Saul will not. We will see David's family spared, but Saul's family is killed. And so this back and forth creates tension. This back and forth highlights the contrast between these two men. And so again, we want David as our king, not Saul or anyone associated with Saul. 
All right, so let's look then at verses 1 and 2. And verse 1, It happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. All right, now we've seen the, the Philistines attack Israel multiple times. We see it in the time of the judges. We see it several times here in this book. And here it is again. And uh, the, the difference now is um, David is in this position, and of course Saul is about to die through all of this. Now, Kish obviously is expecting David to uh, fight with him and for him. Uh, David is basically his mercenary, his servant, you might say, and so he is obligated to help. And so notice the emphasis here. Uh, Akish says, you assuredly know, that's the verb twice, you know, know that you will go out with me. And that prepositional phrase, with me, is also emphasized. So Akish is, is speaking very strongly here, maybe because he's wondering what David would do. Uh, maybe he's just um, speaking emphatically just because of the situation at hand, but uh, probably because he's wondering a bit about David. But remember, Achish thinks that David has been fighting against Israel already. That's what David has led him to believe. So then David responds, verse 2, So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now notice David's response. He speaks truthfully, but he speaks vaguely. Literally, it says, you, you are knowing what your servant is doing. Um, that's not quite true, though. David is truthful, but not completely truthful. This is one of those half-truths, and as I indicated last time, I think we should understand in this case that David is using a half-truth to deceive, and it is not permissible. He's not trying to protect life. He's just deceiving. And so Achish really does not know what David has been doing. Okay? And we saw that last time in chapter 27, verse 11, especially. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Achish takes David word, David's words and basically understands them as David being on his side. And so Achish sets David up as one of his main guards. The Hebrew literally says that David will be the keeper of my head. Now, you remember what David did to one of the heads of the sons of Gath? <laughs> he cut it off. Uh, he cut off Goliath's head. And now he's going to keep the head of Achish. The irony here must not be missed. David must protect Achish. Now, <clears throat> we've seen David be loyal to Saul, even though Saul was not to David. And now here David is going to be loyal to Achish, even though Achish is a non-Israelite. So <clears throat> David's in a tough spot, you might say, but he put himself there. Achish is expecting David to fight against Saul and Israel because Achish thinks David has been doing that. So what's he going to do? Is he going to fight against Israel? Is he going to fight against Saul? And so you see David's dilemma. You see how when we lie in one place, it typically leads to another lie. 
and maybe another lie, and sometimes it leads to a life of lies because we're trying to constantly cover up our other lies. And I think we, that's how we should understand what's going on here with David. And so he is not truthful. He is a mixed bag, as we talked about last time. However, David is not like Saul. As we anticipate verses 3 and following, Saul is very different from David. David is a sinner, but David isn't like Saul as a sinner. There's a fundamental difference. In fact, let's trace this just a little bit. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6 here just a moment. <clears throat> and in 2 Samuel 6, this is when David has the ark brought to Jerusalem. And you remember they put it on a cart when they were not supposed to do that. They were supposed to carry it on the poles. And so Uzzah died and so forth. And um, picking up in verse 10 here in 2 Samuel 6. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now Gittite means someone from Gath. So here's a man from Gath. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And then it continues and see more of that and David finds out and so forth. Now remember, the ark went to Philistia in chapters 4 and following. It went to Ashdod. And you remember what happened, right? Dagon fell over. They got all these tumors and so on and so forth, right? They couldn't live with the ark. Now, that was Ashdod, not Gath, but I don't think it would have mattered. But now, here is a man from Gath who has the ark in his house, and he's blessed. What's the difference? Well, I think we have to see that David was the difference. David had an influence in Gath for good. I I think we need to assume this is Obed-Edom, came to faith, trusted in Yahweh. Let's turn over to chapter 15, 2 Samuel 15. This is in the context of Absalom and uh, chasing David out of town. And if you begin in verse 18, 2 Samuel 15, verse 18, it says, And all the servants passed before him, and all the Carathites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, Passed before the king. Now, maybe that's referring to the 600 men that we've been talking about in 1 Samuel, but maybe it's 600 more men, uh, or maybe 600 different men, at least some of them. Sounds like there's more Gittites, Gathites, that are with David. And it continues And the king said to Atai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. You are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I go, I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. Now listen to these words. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Atai, go and cross over, 
and Atai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. Now those words from Atai sound familiar, don't they? We have a whole book where those words are, you might say, the prominent words, and that's the book of Ruth. Ruth and Atai say some very similar things. We, of course, know Ruth and we praise her, and, and this is great, you know. Uh, she says to Naomi that my God and your God will be the same. Wherever you go, I will go, and so forth, right? We put that on our walls sometimes in our houses and so on. Well, Atai is really saying the same thing, and he's from Gath. Now, Ruth came to faith because of Naomi and, and the rest of the family, right? Well, how did Atai come to faith? Why is he so loyal to David? Why is Obed-Edom from Gath being blessed by the, the Ark of the Covenant? <clears throat> I think the common denominator is that David was in Gath. And that David did, for all of his mixed bagness, so to speak, uh, there was some good there. And God used him to witness to these people, to influence these people. Yes, David lied. Yes, David got himself into a pickle here. But there was some good. Contrast that with Saul. And the difference is so stark, isn't it? David is not perfect. But David is not like Saul. Saul has done some good things. But there's really no evidence of faith on his part. So, as we read these words, and I think we should criticize David, let us recognize that this is a believer who has stumbled, not an unbeliever. Notice also with these thoughts that David's greater son, of course, is the one who brings Gentiles into his church. And so it anticipates that. All right, now, um, <clears throat> to bring us back to our initial point uh, here, uh, what if David would have gone to Gath and told him the truth? What if David would have gone there and said, yes, I'm fighting against common enemies, common enemies, Israel's enemies, and Philistine enemies? Would that have really changed much? Possibly. Would he have been kicked out of Ziklag for doing that? Possibly. I'm not sure it would have. But even if it would have, okay, David was not living by faith in the first place. <laughs> okay. But um, I, I, I'm not sure that David's lying about all this was all that necessary, is my point. When we live by fear... Sometimes our fears make us make really foolish decisions and things that don't really make a whole lot of sense. And then we do things that we really had no reason of doing, in this case, half-truths and lies. Okay. <clears throat> All right, well, the key here, <clears throat> then, is that David is to be faithful to Akish, and he is, just not fully so, um, he is not undermining Achish or the Philistines, um, but he's not undermining Judah either through all of this. 
And so this half-hearted friendship, you might say, is upheld, but David finds himself in a bind. So what's he going to do? Let's feel this tension, as it were. Is David actually going to now go fight against Saul? Is David actually going to fight against fellow Israelites? His lack of faith has gotten him in this bind. Well, again, let's, let's reflect on this for ourselves. When we live by fear, it usually leads us to some kind of problem, some kind of tight spot. And um, uh, yeah, this is certainly not unique to David. We've all done this in one way or another. But if you go back to the source of living by fear and not by faith, okay, that's how we get there. So, what's going to happen? Well, we've got to wait until chapter 29. But before we get to the solution to David's problem, we are then confronted with the foil. It's not a complete stark foil, maybe, but we see Saul contrasted with David. For all of David's problems, Saul is worse. So let's look then here, beginning today, uh, verses um, 3 to 25. We'll get um, not quite half of it here uh, tonight. So in verse 3, shifting, shifting around here, but again, note our broader context. So now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land. All right, obviously this is a background verse, somewhat of a transitional verse, but it's laying the background for everything else here in the chapter. And first of all, we are reminded that Saul was dead. Sorry, Samuel was dead. Okay, chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel had died. And now it's stated again. Um, Obviously, we're only three chapters later. It's not like we've forgotten. But it reiterates the certainty of Samuel's death to stress the reality of his return here in verses 12 and following. And so it sets us up for the real appearance of a dead man. And then secondly... This background is that Saul um, had the evil witches and diviners removed from the land. Now, this is good, obviously. Um, probably had, he had done this many years before when Samuel was still speaking with Saul and trying to help him to do what is right. We're guessing there, but it does seem quite reasonable. So let's turn here a moment to Deuteronomy <clears throat> And uh, chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, <clears throat> here is God's command. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not uh, learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, and then for our point, right, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. 
You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So here was the command, and Saul did it. Maybe 30 or 40 years earlier, but he did it. And so he did something good in that sense. If you turn also to Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus and chapter 20, we have these words. Now this is um, in the context of someone who is doing it within Israel. Right? Deuteronomy, drive them out. Don't, we don't want them there, but for those who practice it. If you look at verse 6, the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Okay. Um, it might be 12 hours. Uh, it's not going to be very long after David talk, or sorry, Saul talks to this woman that he's dead. And this promise of God is fulfilled. Okay. You see the contrast already between Saul and David. And so David is living with the Philistines, with people who are practicing these kinds of things. But Saul's seeking for one. I get ahead of myself here. Let's come back to uh, 1 Samuel. And uh, now here, verse 4. And the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. All right, now remember, chapter 29 happens before verse 4. Okay, again, just our chronology. So here's where I want us to look at our map here a moment. If you have this one that, that I've been using, um, though again, not as recently, uh, you'll see here on this map, see where Jerusalem is, make your way northward. You see Bethel, Shiloh, Shechem, keep going, Terza, up to Jezreel, and you see Issachar. If you have another map, look for Issachar near the Sea of Galilee, right? And on this map, you see Mount Mora, Mount Tabor. And then if you see from Jezreel, go south and east a little bit, you see Bashan. All right, now, from Mount Mora, go southward about five miles, and that's Gilboa. Okay, so here's where Saul brought his troops. This uh, location overlooks the Valley of Jezreel. It also overlooks the road that goes through there. It's a good strategic place. As for Shunem, okay, you see where Mount Mora is on this map. You see where Bashan is. It's about halfway in between that. And so the Philistines actually are further east. And so again, about five miles southeast uh, from, from uh, Mount Mora. Now at this point, the Valley of Jezreel is about 10 miles wide, and we're on the east end. And so therefore, even though there are mountains all over the place, the valley made it conducive for their chariots. Now, nothing is ever said here about their chariots, but surely this would have been one of the reasons why they wanted to go there. Now, <clears throat> if you flip the map over, and on the other one, on the other side, you see Mount Gilboa. Okay. And, and so forth. Right? So you see that location. If you work your way northward, okay, Mount 
Gilboa, Mount Mora, Mount Tabor. Well, Endor is in that general area as you go from Mount Mora to Mount Tabor. So the Philistines then are coming to this location likely because of the advantageous position in the valley of using their chariots. They're also likely wanting to capture the Via Maris, this road that went through there. And, of course, the Jezreel Valley is very fertile, too. It's a a nice location. Maybe they're trying to cut off the northern tribes from the southern tribes. And there's probably several reasons why they picked this location. So here's our location. Here's where they were going. And so we come then to verse 5, which says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Saul sees the army. We're not told how big this army is. Um, But again, likely there are a bunch of chariots, horsemen, soldiers, and so forth. And Saul sees them, and he is greatly afraid. And you can understand this. So remember, chapter 27, verse 1. David is afraid. Now Saul is afraid. Again, the contrast is very deliberate. All right, now if you look back here just a moment to chapter 13... You remember when Jonathan uh, attacks one of the garrisons of the Philistines, and the Philistines basically empty their storehouse of all of their weapons, so to speak. And if you look there at verse 5, it says they gathered together 30,000 chariots. Now, you remember there's a little question of his 30,000 or 3,000. Uh, 6,000 horsemen and people as the sandwiches on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped and so forth. The men of Israel see and they're fleeing to pits and holes and caves and crossing the Jordan. And, and then notice the end of verse 7. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. So the people are trembling. You don't specifically see that there with Saul. But you remember in chapter 17 when Goliath came out, Saul was afraid. And now here we see in chapter 28, Saul is afraid, greatly afraid. Maybe this army is not as big as the one in chapter 13, but enough that he is scared. Scared enough that he wants help, divine help. So verse 6, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Now first of all, in chapter 27, When David was afraid, did he seek the Lord? He didn't. Does Saul seek the Lord? At least on the surface. And so in that sense, Saul is doing better. The problem is, it doesn't work. It says he tried dreams. Now we know from... Uh, some literature outside of Israel at the time, that the common thought was that if you slept in a holy place, that God or the gods would speak to you in a dream. And maybe that's what Saul is doing here. Maybe he went to the tabernacle. You know, maybe he had to dust everything off because he killed all the priests, remember. Um, Maybe he went there and slept there and tried to have this dream, and it didn't work. Then it says about the Urim and Thummim. Now, the problem here is, remember in chapter 23, verse 6, Abiathar came with the ephod to David. 
David had the Urim and Thummim. So how could Saul use the Urim and Thummim? Did he make some more? We don't know. We do know that there was another line of priests. So maybe Saul tapped that line of priests. Maybe they had their own ephod. We don't know. But what's the important thing is it didn't work. And then it says about the prophets. Saul had the priest killed, and the prophets were following in the footsteps of Samuel, who was basically trying to help David, right? Supporting David. Gad came to David. So maybe Saul sought out uh, the prophets there, right? Remember outside of Ramah and such, that little seminary kind of place and so forth, and maybe nobody listened to him. Nobody answered him. Maybe Saul had some false prophets. We don't know. We're not told these details. But Saul tries these things and they all fail. God does not answer Saul. He had no dreams like Joseph. No Urim and Thummim. No prophets. God does not answer. Now the question of course is why? Seems like Saul's doing the right thing, right? He is turning to the Lord in his time of need. That, that's what we want to do, right? So why does God not answer him? Well, remember what we saw in Psalm 109 this morning. Those who do not keep the law, even his prayers are an abomination. Saul had lost the privilege of God hearing his prayers. That's a strong statement, isn't it? You remember back in chapter 15, let's turn there just a moment. You remember in chapter 15 when Saul did not kill the Amalekites completely like he was supposed to and Samuel came. Remember these words. This is verse 23 of chapter 15. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. So that proverb we read this morning Saul is not keeping the law. He's rejected the word of the Lord. And so his prayer is an abomination. He's seeking the Lord, but it makes no difference because Saul had rebelled. And and, and not only is he rebellion like witchcraft, he's now going to turn to witchcraft. Remember chapter 16, verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So we read these words in 1 Samuel 28. that Saul tried to receive an answer from the Lord. And the Lord doesn't answer. And that should not surprise us. Because of what we have seen up to this point. David does not seek the Lord. Saul seeks the Lord, but because of who he is, he's really not seeking the Lord. If Saul were genuine, what would he have done differently? What do we do when we pray and we don't get an answer? Do we run to a witch? We we pray again. We, We persist in our prayers. We, we ask, Lord, uh, you know, is there something I've done? Uh, have I sinned? Uh, what, what's going on, Lord? Right? We repent. We humble ourselves. But Saul doesn't do any of that. 
Saul is good at going through the motions. He's a good politician. He's saying the right things, doing the right things, but there's no real substance there. If there were substance there, he would not have asked where the witches are. So the contrast with David and Saul is seen even in this. And so if we refuse to obey God, even if we come to church every week, if we're refusing to obey God from the heart, at some point God's going to leave us. And that is a terrible place to be in. Saul is really a pig, and God stopped throwing him pearls. God is patient, but eventually he judges sinners. So Saul here is in a very bad place. Samuel is dead. Saul is all alone because of his sin. Now maybe you know someone who's in a position like this, or at least you suspect that they're in a position like this. It's an awful place. Awful place. And so David's disobedience of living by fear is bad. It leads to rock and a hard place. Saul's disobedience to God is shown repeatedly. He's living by fear. He's living in isolation. And now he's going to seek for an answer somewhere else. So verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. David's sin leads to half-truths. Saul's sin leads him to divination. Now, the word here for medium, I think that's a fair way of translating the word because it's someone who's in the middle, right, between the living and the dead. Fair term, okay? Uh, Necromancer may be a better term because it specifically means someone who communicates with the dead. But whatever term you use here, that's exactly what he's asking for. He's not asking for a fortune teller. He's not um, seeking other forms of witchcraft or divination. He is specifically wanting someone to help him to talk to the dead. Um, Not my first thought when God doesn't answer my prayer the first time. But that's by God's grace, of course. But do you see what Saul is doing? And notice, though, that the servants can answer him seemingly right away. Now, maybe they, you know, spread the word among themselves and so forth. And, you know, Do you know anybody? And, you know, eventually somebody, ah, I know somebody. But, but the answer here seems to be immediate. They know where this woman is. She was supposed to be removed from Israel, yet she's hiding out in Endor. Okay? And these servants knew. And if they knew, then why didn't they remove her? If they knew, uh, why are they not restraining the king now? It seems like Saul's servants are not very godly. Saul's servants were about as evil as Saul himself. They are unhelpful servants. So they mention Endor here. And uh, Saul then would have to pass, we think, by the Philistine camp. Now, maybe he could have gone all the way out and around the mountain, but that may have taken far too long 
And so it is very likely that he passed near to the Philistine camp to get to her. Now, again, that makes sense, right? We do sinful things, and it leads us to do other sinful things. And those other sinful things, you know, in in our right mind, we were like, what? Uh, Why did I do that? That didn't make any sense. Well, here's Saul, deathly afraid of the Philistines, but willing to pass near to the Philistines to get to this woman. And he's risking capture, torture, and death. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But sin doesn't make sense, does it? So verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. All right, so first here he disguised himself, right? Plus the cover of darkness. He's trying to escape detection by the Philistines. Uh, More specifically, he's trying to escape detection by this woman and even hide from God. Of course, you can't do that. And Saul wants then to talk to a dead person. So hence the language of a seance and again the medium or necromancer and such. So then verse 9. And the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? The woman asks a rather logical question here. She's suspicious. Um, It's probable that she's a Canaanite woman and not an Israelite woman, but regardless, she's suspicious. She's afraid she's going to get thrown in jail or whatever. But now notice Saul's response, verse 10. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Wow, what audacity. Did you hear what Saul just said? He is swearing by God that he will not uphold God's word. Do you see the contrast with David and Saul? It's very stark. Saul swears by Yahweh, saying he will not punish the woman that God said should be punished. He has no right to do this, and yet he does. Again, don't we do the same things? We flaunt God's word. We do whatever we want. We don't worship him when we're supposed to. We make decisions about relationships or whatever it is that are completely contrary to God's word, and yet we justify saying, oh, God's for me, God's with me, or whatever. In this election season, we hear it ad nauseum from the politicians. They use God's name to do evil things. So verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. So first of all, notice that the woman is comforted by Saul's lie, by Saul's audacity, by Saul's presumption. It comforts this woman. And so she asks whom she should summon. And Saul says, Samuel. Even now, Saul wants Samuel's guidance. Now, now earlier... Right? He, he, he sought the Lord, but seemingly in a rather hollow way. 
But at least he was seeking the Lord, at least on the surface. And now to seek one of God's prophets, oh, that's a good thing. The problem is he's dead. Saul just can't quite get it right. He, he's, he's kind of on the right track, but he's just not there, right? We know people like that, don't, don't we? All right. <clears throat> now, Samuel of course, had rejected Saul about 15 years before all of this. Samuel's death was probably at least a few months before this, maybe a few years. We don't know for sure. But Saul is so desperate that he is willing to use ungodly methods to find peace. He's hoping Samuel will help him. So the question for us then in all of this is simply this. Are we like David, a mixed bag, or are we like Saul? And that's really the question. And, and the way we evaluate this is not, I, I never do anything that is bad. The question is, what do we do when we do things that are bad? When we sin, when we live by fear, when we have half-truths and so forth, um, how far down that path of sin do we actually go? You know a tree by its fruit. Even the best of Christians have some bad fruit. But the tree is essentially good, and the fruit isn't completely bad and rotten. But if the fruit that we bear leads us further and further down that path, unto sin and ungodliness. And that says a lot about who we are. Remember this morning in Psalm 109, I said you often know the kind of person based on the clothes that they wear. And for that man, it was clothing of cursing. Well, you know, when we get ourselves into trouble, we're living by fear and so on and so forth. If we're turning to things that are essentially evil, and it says a lot about who we really are. So today, yeah, okay, maybe we read our horoscope or wish on a star or, you know, we trust in Harry Potter and Dumbledore or, or tarot cards or Ouija boards or the rabbit's foot or rally caps or lucky socks or, you know, whatever it is. That would be a more direct connection. But what does that say then about us? We're trusting in these things rather than God. Maybe um, we could include this too, you know, those who turn to drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or pornography or whatever it is, things that are inherently wrong. But we also tend to turn to things that are inherently good, but we use them as idols. We use them to replace God, and that can include our spouse, our friends, our work, other things. Again, our fundamental point here is, do you see the contrast with David and Saul? And the question for us is, first of all, which one are we like? Not, do you live by fear sometimes? The question is, what then do you do after that? How do we respond when we sin? David eventually is going to come back to the right place by God's grace. Saul doesn't. David's going to end up as king. Saul's going to end up dead. What about us? David is bad. Saul is worse. Which one are we? 
But also, remember this broader point. The writer of 1 Samuel is telling us, we want David as our king. We don't want Saul. We don't want anyone like Saul. We want David as our king. And so in this election season, hey, let's be aware. Hey, which man or woman, potentially, are we going to vote for? We must look not for someone who is perfect, but for someone who actually trusts in the Lord to lead righteously. All right, well, we're going to have to stop here in the middle of everything and uh, pick up with this, Lord willing, next time. Lord, we thank you again that you have uh, given us your word and preserved it for us over these many thousands of years. We thank you, Lord, that we can read these words and learn by them. Lord, as we see these contrasts, it's easy for us just to say, well, yeah, okay, and learn a little bit more about David and Saul. But the purpose, of course, is for us to evaluate ourselves, to judge, to discern, even as we did at the Lord's table this morning. Where are we really? Let's make our calling and election sure. Saul thought he was a believer. He went through the motions outwardly, but there was nothing deep within him. Where are we? Lord, help us to see clearly. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful, that none of us here would be in such a place that you would quit throwing your pearls to us. You would quit hearing our prayers. We pray for your mercies in this way, Lord. We pray for your grace to this church, to the people of this church. We pray, Lord, then, that you would help us to actually live by faith and not by fear, to turn to you truly and sincerely, to rest in you and to obey you. Um, Not to be saved, of course, but because of the grace you have shown to us in Christ. As we pray for your mercies in this way, we pray for your enabling. And uh, we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.